Welcome to Fully Booked. My name is Adam. And my name is Frank. And we are Fully Booked. Frank, do you, in New York, do you have Alamo Draft House? Or if you, are you familiar with the Alamo Draft House? We have a lot of local breweries, but we don't have that particular one. There's a number on Long Island, like Blue Point Brewery. Um, we have just a number of them. There's one even with a just a number and it's like a year and you think it's for a time period. I've drawn a blank on what it is right now, but yeah, we have a number of breweries and even like wineries out here. That's kind of what Long Island is known for out in the Hamptons, the going to the wineries. We have, we have a ton of uh, breweries just all over the place because it's the post-hipster renaissance. But the Alamo Draft House is a movie theater, and it's the greatest movie theater I've ever been to. I don't know why Winchester, Virginia, which is a very small city, has been blessed with an Alamo Draft House because there's not that many across the country. Um, but they're amazing. It's a movie theater, but it's one of the movie theaters where you have a table in front of you and you can order food and drinks while you watch the movie. Very cool. I mean, I'm just thinking, I feel like an idiot now thinking that you were talking about a, like a brewery. No, because it sounds like a brewery. <laughs> oh, you can, but you can watch movies there too. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like a brewery, but it's a, it's a, it's a movie theater. It's, it's really cool because they, for any movie that they show, like I always show up a half an hour before the movie airs because they do this like clip show at the beginning. So for, for example, for like, if you go to see Spider-Man, they will show you really cheesy, like the Turkish version of Spider-Man. They'll show you clips from these really bad Spider-Man movies and TV shows for like half an hour, and then they'll start the movie. And throughout the whole thing, like be because of the way things are tiered, like your waiters will will walk underneath the tables and like put your food up on the table and you can put like a little, you can write something down on a piece of paper, like another beer, please. And stick it up at the end of the at the end of the row, and then they'll come grab that and they'll bring you beer. So your movie's never interrupted, but food will just appear if you want it to. It's amazing. So we have something of that nature. They don't really do it anymore, but it's called Island Sixteen. So Island, Long Island, and Sixteen meaning it has sixteen theaters inside of it. It's our big theater on Long Island. It's very close to me. That's the only theater I go to. I refuse to go to any other. Yeah. Once you find that great theater, it's almost hard to go back to any like sub version of that. And they have a bar inside of the theater and there's, you know, multiple areas to get food and whatnot, but they don't have, what me and my sister noticed this, they don't have the, when you go towards the theater doors, like when they say, oh, you're theater three, for example, they would also have on either side, depending upon where you go, there would be concession stands there too. They don't seem to make those active anymore, even though they exist. I don't know why, but they used to also have the opportunity if you wanted to go into your theater and order food from your seat, they would do that. Like they actually had waitress, waitresses that would come around and ask you, do you want anything? And they would put in the thing and they'd bring it to you. I haven't seen them do that in a long time. So it's cool to know that that still is, is a thing, at least by where you are. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. And then, so here's the thing. I have been getting back into going to the movie theater. Um, cause before the pandemic, the last movie I saw was at the Alamo, the Alamo would do, they do it all the time. They do special showings of things. They do like little movie camps so you can see old children's movies for like five bucks. Um, but they also do something called psycho cinema, which is, it's like every, every Tuesday they'll show some crazy movie and they showed the original 1954 Godzilla. And I saw that. It was like the perfect thing to watch in the movie theater. And then the pandemic happened and I made the decision to never go back to the movie theater because I was like, I don't want to see another bad movie. I'll just end it there. But finally, I've gone back and I've been going back pretty constantly. But a movie that I really wanted to see, uh, Shin Kamen Rider, was only showing at the Standard Theater in Winchester. 
had not been to the standard theater in a long time. Holy cow. <laughs> have you been to a standard theater that doesn't have all of the all of the niceties? So we have a number of them. Literally, if I wanted to right now, I could drive five minutes from my house and there's what's called PJ Cinemas. So Port Jeff Cinemas. So that's the town right next to me where I am. That's the town I grew up in. And it's a run-of-the-mill, very basic theater. We used to go there a lot as a, as kids because it was very cheap. So yes, I I can't really get myself to go to those anymore after what I've been exposed to now. See, and this one's not cheap either. It's an AMC theater, but I showed up and I went to the door and the door had a sign on it that said, door's broken, use the next door. So I walked to the next door and the next door had a sign on it that said, door's broken, use the next door. And I kid you not, I went to the next one, broken. The next one, broken. Went around the corner, only door that was functioning into the AMC movie theater. And I walk into this place is huge, like built for a huge like midnight showing cavernous entryway and, and waiting area ticket booth and nobody is in this place absolutely nobody we got this long counter and i went up to the counter and i was like hi can i get a lagunitas ipa and the kid says yeah we only serve that at the alcohol side that's down on the other side of the, the counter you have to walk down there so I said, okay. So I started to walk and then he's the only person working. So he walked at the same time. So we walked next to each other all the way down to the other side of the counter. And then we stopped and he goes, yeah, what can I get you? And I was like, a login to IPA. <laughs> the same thing I needed down there. <laughs> it almost sounded like he was amusing himself. Well, and then I so I go into the theater and it, it, this was like a, a Wednesday night. So I drank a beer. I'm watching the movie. It's subtitled and I'm starting to drift off and I'm really excited about this movie. So I was like, I better go get like a bag of popcorn. So I go back out, <laughs> stand in front of this kid who's just watching a movie on his phone. And I was like, <clears throat> nothing. Keep wa keeps watching the movie. And I was like, <clears throat> keeps watching the movie. Hey, can I get a bag of popcorn? Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Gets me a bag of popcorn, which is $10. And I take it back to my seat, and it is the worst thing I've ever eaten. So the salt is just cutting my teeth, tastes awful and burnt. <laughs> it's like, this is, this is terrible. So I'm going back to the Alamo tomorrow night to see Pink Flamingos. Just go, normal spot. I'm not going back to AMC. I don't care how badly I want to see the movie. Do you go by yourself or does your wife and kids go? So we've done, I, we did Super Mario Brothers, uh, which we all did together. Then I saw Evil Dead Rise by myself. Um, then we saw Little Mermaid, which sucked. Uh, we all saw that together with some friends. And then Shin Kamen Rider by myself. Pink Flamingos will definitely be by myself. No one will. No one wants to see that. That's pretty neat that you're, that you're willing to go by yourself. I haven't done, I've done um, traveling trips by myself, but I've never went to the movies by myself. I love going to the movie theater by myself. It's great. I'll have to try. I'd have to consider trying it. But the thing is, is my mom really loves going to movies too. And I couldn't like not ask her if she wanted to go. Cause so her boyfriend doesn't like movies, like going to the movies, I should say. Right. My sister's husband. So my brother-in-law doesn't like going to the movies either. And so it's just me, my mom, and my sister that really like going to movies. And my sister kind of, my sister likes them, but she kind of tags along. She's not as into it as me and my mom, like I've said in a previous episode, 
were like borderline getting the point of movie critics. Like if you said, Hey, did you see X? Yes, we saw it. Like we were seeing a movie a week. So we never missed anything. Now it's like, I don't even know what I want to see anymore. And I don't go as often. Um, I don't even keep up with it. So I think it's cool that like you could be now my, uh, my update on the, on what movies are out. Cause I don't really know what's going on anymore. Well, it's like, I don't really either like kids movies. I got you covered. Um, but with the Alamo, like having the psycho cinema thing, like, I mean, Pink Flamingos is 1972. Was it last week? I think they showed Nightmare on Elm Street 3. They show all kinds of uh, crazy, obscure, like grindhouse stuff. So it's not like I'm seeing brand new films. <laughs> so are the so were you seeing any horror movies as well? Like old horror movies that you were a fan of? Have you went and done any of those? Have they done any of those? No, they do them all the time. Um, I was kind of choosy, though. I really wanted to see Pink Flamingos. Um, but if they weren't showing Pink Flamingos, I probably would have gone to see Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which was, I think, last week or the week before. I did see Evil Dead Rise, but that is a new one. I haven't even found any horror movies these days that really even capture my attention anymore. A lot of them look yeah. too cheesy to me. I need something really like in my face that's something different, you know? Evil Dead Rise was good. It, I mean, it was very gory, but it was like, um, I don't know, to, going to see it in the movie theater, was, it, it felt kind of like a thrill ride because I just spent the whole movie like, ah, ooh, ah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it wasn't the best movie to eat too. <laughs> the two didn't go hand in hand with each other. Not so much. No, I mean, in terms of, I don't know, all the movies I've seen that have new have been kind of, uh, Super Mario was fun, but like without the kids, it would it would have been dumb. And A Little Mermaid was awful. Yeah, I have no like real inclination to really see what's even out. Like, because most of the movies, like I think from you know just from what you just said, and even in general, like I'll look at like some of the trailers and stuff. Like, just for example, like my sister I know wants to see the new Flash movie, and we talked about that on a prior episode. That doesn't. I'll see it, but it doesn't look too interesting to me, you know. So I, I just these days, and I don't even feel like I'm seeing advertisements pushed for movies as often as you have before. Granted, I'm not watching cable as often, and I like I so I'm on YouTube most of the time. But even there, you used to see the banners and stuff for the trailers trying to promote various movies. You don't even see that. Well, I was thinking too, like, like I really like this cinema, but they, they do a lot to make it entertaining. But like, if all I had was the AMC, like, you know, I, I've got a 55 inch, like four, four K upscaled TV that I bought for $200 a couple of years ago. <laughs> like, like I'm set. We did that, you know, during the pandemic, that's when stuff started to switch to streaming. Like we, you know, we'd pay $24 that for a movie that we could all watch. And we we're like, it's still cheaper than going to the movie theater. Like, this is fine. This is absolutely fine. It's not like when we were kids where it's like, you know, your your VHS tape release a year after the movie comes out is not really a substitute for going to see it in the movie theater. But yeah, I can wait three weeks to see it on streaming. Yeah. And we had those tube TVs, so you didn't have flat screens. You didn't have, you know, 55-inch televisions. They were, what, 24 at the most, sometimes 32. Right. If that. Yeah. So this week, yesterday... This past Sunday, I actually finally got to do some reading. I haven't been able to do as much as I'd wanted to, and I read a mini series. I've almost wrapped it up. So it was a mini series. I've talked about it on earlier episodes of the show, uh, The Sins of Sinister. Oh, yeah. I've been putting it off because for, for a funny reason. So since the 90s, back when comics used to have a lot of words, I was fine with it back then, and I was conditioned to read a lot of words on in comics. 
now because they put like two words on a page, I'm not used to it anymore. So when they do do it, like in this series, I'm like, oh boy, let me sit down, strap in and dedicate an hour because I'm not going to get through these 32 pages as fast as I would get through a standard comic. Yeah. And it's very wordy, like a mouthful in terms of the descriptions and the locations. And I'm kind of thinking, boy, I probably need some type of background knowledge on this because I have a feeling the lore within the X-Men universe with the sins of even the sins of Sinister from what I've talked with my local comic book store. It seems to be reminiscing previous events that I'm not maybe privy to. So I thought having originally when I jumped onto this miniseries, I would understand everything. I don't. But it does a good job with summary. Marvel, I have to give them credit where credit's due. They do do a very good job of summarizing things to help keep you, you know, in the loop of what's going on. So I finished the three main parts of the Sins of Sinister. So the Sins of Sinister spans three titles. So they had obviously the one shot, the first one shot to kick it off, which is like the quote unquote alpha, which they call it a one shot, even though it's really not a one shot. It's really just a part one. And then you have Immor- Immortal X-Men, Nightcrawlers, and Storm and the Brotherhood, I believe it was called. So those three titles transcend this entire story arc. Hmm. And basically a, a brief summary is Mr. Sinister uh, cloned X-Men through their gene and he pretty much had complete control over them, almost like a robot. But the thing he didn't expect, and he used this through the Mora clone, Mora McTaggart, uh, to be able to achieve this. The thing he didn't expect was the clones to turn on him and all of a sudden have minds of their own and they want to take over. Now he needs to reset everything because of the problem. Conceptually, love it. Implementation, eh, not so much. Yeah. It's like I said, very wordy. And that is a, like, it's, you know what? Did you ever read something and you're like, I'm having to reread these bubbles over and over? It's like, I'm not following what you're saying. Yeah. Did you find, and this might contribute to it as well, like I really struggle when a when a series goes across different series. So like when a miniseries goes across different titles in comic books, I struggle with that sometimes because the art changes, the writing style changes, and they're all trying to emulate each other. And it always just seems off and it's very off-putting to me. And that that's what throws me for a loop a lot of the time. It's an excellent point because each series that I mentioned, each comic, I should say, as part of the overall series is written by a different person for each one. There is different artists. And one artist who I like that writes wrote the Storm and the Brotherhood one, that was probably my favorite and the most memorable of the three series is Storm and the Brotherhood because I think it's because I like Al Ewing's writing. And Al Ewing also wrote the Immortal Hulk series that was extremely popular when it was when it was out but you know the other writers I'm like boy this is really difficult to mesh the two styles of writing together it's 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 like um what's the word I'm looking for it's 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 incongruent yeah yeah and it's like juxtaposed you know ways of storytelling trying to mesh things together that probably shouldn't be meshed together. It's not bad as an overall. I still have the like the final issue to read in the comic, which is the final one shot. And it, it gets it's been exciting at the end since we're finally getting to the end. But you know what the ironic thing is, the reason I bought this comic, and I don't know if this is a reason to be buying a comic. It goes back to my favorite artist right now, Carrie Andrews, who's been doing the 90s style art. He has been forcing me to buy comics that I normally wouldn't buy because I like that he's doing the art for like a variant cover. 
And so I feel like I'm kind of committing myself to read it if I'm going to start it. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to finish it, especially if it's an ongoing series. I'm kind of wondering, is that, what do you think? Is that a reason to really buy just, just purely based on that fact alone? Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing with comics. Like there, there's so many different reasons to purchase them and celebrate them. So, so you do you, Frank. I follow certain artists just like I follow certain writers. And sometimes it doesn't flum reading a, a Colin Bunn horror series right now where I'm like, this is good writing, but I'm not sure the, we'll see what happens in the, in the second issue when it ramps up the action a little bit, but like the, the art is good, but it doesn't complement the words. So I feel like one can also outweigh the other. Like sometimes the art can be really great um, and the story not so much, but it's worth picking it up just for the artwork. The Sins of Sinister artwork has been fantastic. That I have thought as an overall throughout the entire story. But this is not something I think that's easily retainable in terms of a memorable series or you know something that's really going to stick with you because just too wordy. That's just been that was been been my biggest pet peeve about it this whole time. But like I mentioned, like with Carrie Andrews having done the original one shot variant cover, you know, it gave me a reason to read something I don't normally read. I don't normally read many X Men related stuff. I mean, the X Men I would like to read is Uncanny X Men, but they haven't done that title in quite a while. Not with the original characters. So, but yeah, it's it's something different. What's kind of reassuring is it kind of reemphasizes why you like what you like. So when you sometimes go off and be like, I'm going to try this because I haven't done it or read this before. And you're like, this is why I don't read this kind of story. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is defined by its opposite, right? You got to be familiar with the opposite to know what you like. Mm -hmm. Nice. Very nice. Well, we have also read something together this week, which is a short story. AJ read it to me before I went to bed. I did. I did not. Um, <laughs> but I'll read it to you now. Uh, no. So this is what we read was The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. And this is from 19, it's from the 1970s, I believe 1973. Oh, wow. So this is old. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's been out. It's been out for some time. And you were not familiar with this short story, correct? I wasn't at all. And I just want to preface it by saying that normally I'm resistant to reading anything that's in a PDF form. And I want to give people listening a little backstory about the bad memory it gives me. I, when I was in ninth grade in Greek mythology class, our teacher, who I liked, always used to print off these short stories uh, related to Greek mythology. And it would always be like in PDF form. It had like, you know, all the, the black blocks with the text because it looked like it was scanned from a book. Yep, because it was. Yeah. And I always had, and the font was really small and it always gave me like pause because I was like, I, I didn't like the story. And so whenever I see anything now, when AJ texted me the short story in PDF form, I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) And I was like, I'm probably not going to like this, but you know what? AJ finds some weird stuff. I said, maybe, maybe this won't be a Greek mythology story. And it certainly wasn't. No, um, this is a, a story that's very easy to, I, I would recommend if you haven't read it before, listeners, if you haven't read it before, pause, we'll link that PDF in um, the show notes. You, sh- you should read it first, but even if you don't care about spoilers, you want to go through it. Um, you're going to get the point of the story. We'll walk through beat by beat and then we'll discuss it. It's a very, like, there's a specific punchline to this story and if you feel like oh i got it okay i don't need to read it you really should read it like the the writing here is key um i thought it was easily digestible but the opening of it the i would say the first page into maybe page and a half at first i wasn't really sure where it was going 
very descriptive. I didn't really get it at first. It was kind of like, to be honest, in the beginning, it was a little boring to me. I didn't really, I was like, where is she going with this? Yeah, and it's it's written very purposely. Like, even though it's so short, it's about five pages long. Um, it's split into a couple different sections in that, like, it's really a description of a utopian society, um, a city called Omelas. And so it's very picturesque. It's very descriptive at the beginning, um, just how perfect this place is. And it almost comes off as like an old style fairy tale kind of writing. Like once upon a time, there was this city and this is what the city was like. But then it starts to it starts to break a little bit and speak directly to the reader of like, hey, if you're not really following this, if you're not really digging it, like put your own spell on it like whatever you imagine the perfect society would be go and throw that in there that's in there too sure like whatever it takes for you to understand that this is the perfect society that's what we want even in describing the people like she says they were not simple folk you see they were though they were happy but we do not say the words of cheer much anymore all smiles have become archaic given a description such as this one tends to look next for the king mounted on a splendid stallion surrounded by his noble knights Perhaps a golden litter born of great, born by great muscled slaves. And up until this point, I don't know if you felt this way too. Like that's what I was kind of picturing. Like, oh, it's it's kind of like this medieval town where like everything's going well. Like, it did take me a while to realize it, but yes, I did come to the same conclusion of a utopian society, like just a world. The beginning of it, even though I wasn't following where she was going with it, I found it very poetic with her detailed descriptors. I thought I was reading a poem at first and I was like, I don't know where this poem is going. I really, I actually almost had to stop and text you and be like, I have no idea what this is about. So I don't know how we're going to talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> but I, I almost warned you. Yeah. Cause when she's describing, she's like, you know, there's, there's um, boys and girls naked in the bright air, mud stained feet and ankles and long lithe arms. They exercise their restive horses before the race. Cinematic in a way. Yeah, very much so. But she comes to this point where it's like, you're probably thinking like, hey, there's a king here, but there's no king. They didn't use swords. They didn't keep slaves. They were not by barbarians. I don't know the rules and laws of their society, but I suspect that they were singularly few as they did without monarchy and slavery. So they also got on without the stock exchange, the advertisement, the secret police, the bomb. Yet I re repeat, these were not simple folk, not dulcet shepherds, noble savages, bland utopians. They were not less complex than we like. That's when she really starts to speak to the reader like, OK, like this is flowery language. You're probably making assumptions here, but throw those out like this is the perfect place. There's very few laws, but they're making it work like everything works in this society. I like how she broke away from what she was describing Almost like, imagine like me and you talking right now and you like then turn to the, the camera that you're not supposed to look at. You break the fourth wall. It's like, oh, don't forget. I, I see you there. I didn't forget about you. Yeah, because it's like, okay, now you're mentioning bombs and stock exchanges and secret police. Okay, now I know you're including me <laughs> like in this scenario here. And she jumps back into it then again very quickly. Like she 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 talks to you for a brief period so that it's like, like almost like you said, you following me? Like, here's where, where I'm going with this. And then she dives back and it's like, I have to leave you now. Right. Yeah. Back into it. But even that, like, it gets very descriptive, but then it gets loose. Like, she says, happiness is based on just a discrimination of what's necessary, what's neither necessary nor destructive and what is destructive. In the middle category, however, 
that of the unnecessary but undestructive of comfort, luxury, exuberance. Like she's throwing so many of these adjectives and synonyms at you. They could perfectly well have central heating or subway trains or washing machines and all kinds of marvelous devices not yet invented here. Uh, floating light sources, fuelless power, a cure for the common cold. So it really becomes like if you're not following whatever you envision is good for society, sure, it's here. There was a lot of, let me, let me throw this at you. Let me throw that at you. Does this connect? Does that connect? Like, what can I say? Y- yes. <laughs> what can I say to convince you that this place is perfect and real? Well, she, she gives my, my favorite part there, which <laughs> she's like, I fear the Omla so far strikes some of you as goody goody. Smiles, bells, parades, horses, blah. If so, please add an orgy. <laughs> that, yeah, that part got me too. <laughs> <laughs> And she even talks about drugs too. She's like, hey, you, like you want drugs in the society? That's that's fine. But you can kind of hear the predictions of like someone would say like, well, I wouldn't have drugs in my perfect society. And she goes out of her way to say like, okay, well, these drugs are like they just bring a pure comfort. They don't cause you harm. They're not going to cause you to cause other people harm. And they're non-habit forming. Like She's just so like whatever you want. It's there. It works. It's perfect. Yeah, she's got a good sense of humor. And I do like how she recognizes if she might hit a nerve with somebody. And so she's like, okay, it doesn't have to be that. It could be this. Preemptively being like, sorry, 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 sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I found her very amusing. Yes. As as the read went on, once I followed where she was going, I said, oh, utopian world. I was like, okay, now, I, now I'm with you. Because in the beginning, I didn't have any idea. Right. It just... It throws you in, but that's like, that's like the perfect kind of read on it, right? Because you get, you get the sense once the story turns like, okay, now I got you right where I want you. Okay. Now think about this. Right. Yeah. She, she does smack you in the face at, at, as we, you know, progress. Yeah. So once all of that has laid, has been laid out, she says, do you believe Do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No. Let me describe one more thing. In a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelas, or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there's a room. It has one locked door and no window. A little light seeps in dustily between cracks in the boards, secondhand from a cobwebbed window somewhere across the cellar. And in one corner of the little room, a couple of mops with stiff, clotted, foul-smelling heads stand near a rusty bucket. The floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch, as cellar dirt usually is. The room is about three paces long and two wide, a mere broom closet or disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting. It might be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but actually is nearly ten. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective, or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear, malnutrition, and neglect. What was going through your head, Frank, when you got to this point? When she's describing the child, this is where it gets disturbing, just the whole notion of it. So I'm going to, to best describe my thoughts through this whole description, because we're pretty much, I mean, there's not much to talk about as, as you all may see, because it is a short story. So this really is the end here. I've described it as a utopian world sustained at the expense of one, AKA the sacrificial lamb. Yeah, absolutely. So in order for these people who decry happiness, but they're actually absent of none of that, they, they choose to live in this make-believe world where they're actually all broken. They're self-absorbed, consumed within themselves, but they really have despair for the neglected child. And instead of doing the right thing to bring it out and face the real world of everyday life, they choose to let this one sacrificial land, this scapegoat, suffer 
so that they could shield themselves from any pains or whatever they may have. So they're not living in a reality. And there she goes and brings it home. <laughs> so this is, Frank, this is going to be interesting because I think we have, I think we have different reads on it, which is what's great about this short story. This kind of hits you. Just what? I'm sorry. Where is this going? <laughs> like what is happening here? Cause it goes on like that description is it, it. There's much more to that description of like this kid is sitting in its own excrement. Um, the most heartbreaking line to me I think is um, the people at the door never say anything because it, it talks about how, okay, mm -hmm. like sometimes people come in and they put food out and they leave and that's it. Nobody says anything to this child. Nobody really looks at this child if they don't have to. Um, the people at the door never say anything, but the child who has not always lived in the tool room, that's the line that gets me every time I read this story. The child who has not always lived in the tool room and can remember sunlight and its mother's voice sometimes speaks. I will be good, it says. Please let me out. I will be good. They never answer. The child used to scream for help at night and cry a good deal, but now it only makes a kind of whining and it speaks less and less often. That part, yeah, was, was brutal. Yeah. So Laguine doesn't explain why this child is here. Um, which I think is really important. She doesn't explain why this child is here, but she goes out of her way to convince you like the child has to be here for this society to function. And if this child is released, cause she talks about, okay, like sometimes people make almost this pilgrimage to see this child, like, Hey, look at this. This is what is sustaining your world. And then they, and then they leave. But if they say and if they let it out or if they even say anything nice to it, like any words of comfort, like it'll be OK, then everything crumbles like this utopian society is no more like it explodes. Yeah, not not physically explodes, but like metaphorically, I mean, like yeah. more like it, it, everything they have disappears right like, that's the end of it yeah you get the sense this is a society that's not filled with any kind of strife there is no war there's no famine there are never any diseases <laughs> that outbreak like she even says like there's not even a common cold here but if you comfort this child in any way or try to rescue it all of that is gone it destroys this society as i was reading it and seeing how the people would react. I started to make comparisons in my head of what does this remind me of? And it actually, believe it or not, very small scene in the movie A Christmas Carol, which mm. is probably my favorite Christmas movie, one of them of all time. I love seeing the play. I just love A Christmas Carol. And if you recall the scene, and I forget which version of A Christmas Carol this was, this is going back, not the very first ever, but this is going back, I think it's the 40s or the, the late 30s, early 40s. I, I, I may be wrong. You may know the year. When he says, this child represents want, yeah. this one represents greed, and like to be, like that representation is what this story gave me reminders of. That was kind of the first relatable comparison I made. Yeah, that's a good connection. And I got to say too, when on my first reading, my knee jerk reaction is, is I think exactly what yours was, which is like, oh my God, do something. <laughs> like, what do you, what yeah. is everyone in this town doing? Like, it's, it doesn't seem possible that they're not interfering, but, but she does go out of her way to say this, like these, these are the, the terms that the child, they would, people would like to do something for, I should say this. They feel disgust 
which they had thought themselves superior to. They feel anger, outrage, impotence, despite all the explanations. These are the people that come to see the child. And this is like when the children in the town get older, they're told that this child exists. And this is their like reaction to that. They feel anger, outrage, impotence, despite the explanations. They would like to do something for the child, but there's nothing they can do. If the child were brought up into the sunlight out of that vile place, if it were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing indeed. But if it were done in that day and hour, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Amalas would wither and be destroyed. Those are the terms to exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in Omelas for that single small improvement to throw away the happiness of thousands for the chance of the happiness of one. That would be to let the guilt within the walls indeed. An interesting line there for the chance of the happiness of one, because she also goes out of her way. And it almost seems like she's justifying it to herself when she says this of like, even if we let the child out, the child is so screwed up at this point. Like there's no guarantee that it will be okay. <laughs> like, and that it will take comfort in being pulled out of this situation. She leaves it open-ended. Yeah. She doesn't, what I, what I like about her style of writing is she doesn't, there is no what happened because right. that's what people always want. People always want closure at the end. And in this one, there is no closure. Yeah. Our, our closure is this, like the child's never going to be let out because this is a big city. Like these are thousands of people. And if they do let the child out, then like everything is destroyed. But when children get older and they go to see the child or when adults just finally can't take it anymore, there are a select few people in the town that leave they leave the city of Omelas. And that's where that's where the name of the story comes from. Those the ones who walk away from Omelas. They just leave. And she's unable to describe. She's so good at describing Omelas, but she's like, I don't know where they go. Like I cannot, I absolutely cannot describe what is outside of the city. And you get the sense of like, it's not good, but they would rather live out there than live in here, knowing that all of this prosperity is at the suffering of this child. I have a little like note here that I wrote about the people of Omelas as it relates to the child. I wrote, the people of Omelas are the true lost souls and the neglected child is representing the canvas on which these people's lives are represented, masking their own pain. So these people are actually in a lot of pain, just like you know any other person who you've all heard the expression, you don't know what somebody's going through. Everybody's everybody's going through something. So these people are all going through something in their lives, but they found a way to mask that. And yet what they're doing is masking the pain at the expense of the pain of another. And so they found a way to distract themselves in an unethical way around that. But the people at the end understand that what they're living in is not an actual reality. And they want to break out of that. So I love that piece of writing at the end when she talks about them not even acknowledging it, just walking past it and leaving. And to me, that was a representation of the characters who feel powerless to stop what's going on, but understand that the child is more reminiscent of real a real world scenario than what they've been living in. So this is their way of, you know what? We understand it's not going to be perfect, but we're going to live in reality instead of this daydream we've surrounded ourselves in. Yeah, that was that was my interpretation. It 
interesting that I did what I was really looking forward to this is thinking that, oh, maybe we'll interpret things differently. But it seems like we both had the same feelings about this. Well, let me take it in a different direction. Okay. This makes me think of oh, our society as Alma lost. And think about that for a second. Like you can't, you can't have any kind of a society without the suffering of other people and other things. And I think for this story, it's just boiled into one human. Like this human, it's the, it's the biblical scapegoat, right? It, because there's no gender here. It's just it takes on all of the suffering so that we don't have to. And what it really made me think of, like, I mean, think about, think about like, what does it cost to make our phones? Right. What does it cost to make the batteries in our phones? Like what kind of suffering is taking place over human suffering is taking place overseas because of the things that we purchase and the things that we contribute to. And when I start thinking of it like that, that's where I start to think like, whoo, okay, we cause a lot of, of um, destruction and we're okay with that. And, and I think what really like clinched it for me is like, so, so I'm a vegetarian. Um, and part of the reason why I'm a vegetarian is like, I can't, like I, I can't physically, I physically recoil. I think meat is gross, but also like what it takes to create it is too much suffering for me. But I understand that that is not like me doing that. And it's not something I talk about because I think that's obnoxious when people do, but I'm doing it for the sake of this, <laughs> this story here. Me doing that is contributing to nothing. Me pulling out of that system changes absolutely nothing about the production of the meat. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I understand where you're going with it. Like, and if I stopped buying phones, then like that's one consumer does not stop cobalt mining in Africa. It's it's more for yourself, right? Right, and, and that's what I got from these people. Is like, but but in their case, they're walking away from the third. Like they're becoming ascetics, right? <laughs> like they're completely leaving society but they have this understanding of like we can't free the child like my my knee-jerk reaction i think yours is as well is like just free the child good for god's sake look at the thing but think about what they have to take on the guilt of destroying the lives of thousands versus saving the life of one and that's where the battle itself lies right and you know, like when you when you're trying to think from like a, a moral standpoint of you you essentially want both. Yeah. Where I want to save the child, but I don't want to. You know, even though I feel these people are living in a make believe world, I don't want to interfere with the happiness that they may have never felt in their entire lives outside of this right world that they've created for themselves. Even though I know it's not real, I'm gonna be, I'm just gonna let them be. But I'm seeing the suffering of a child and I'm like, something needs to be done. What is the absolute definitive right answer? Well, it's hard to really say what is because you pick one side and then you could find a way to make it where it's, that's not the right call. But yeah, my gut reaction is save the child. Yeah. And, and that, and I think part of that is, is her boiling it down to one child makes that easy. And, and when you see people get self-righteous about certain political ideologies, like I, I think that's kind of the same thing in a lot of cases. Cause I started to think of it from the standpoint of like, I don't, I don't know if I buy that they're living in a fantasy 
world. Like I think the ones that are content to stay are probably perfectly happy. <laughs> like, and if they're happy until they die, like I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's, I think it feels so morally wrong because we know it's down to one child. Um, but I was thinking in terms of like, like, you know, we have, we have class structure in America because we have capitalism and this is not bashing that, but like, that is like, there has to be winners and losers, right? There, there has to be poverty in a system like that. And, and you could say like, okay, well, let's do a different system Well, you could point out a different system and say, well, that system clearly doesn't work. Let's switch to communist. That clearly creates suffering as well. And, and that suffering is this child. Like no matter where you turn, if you're in a spot where you're comforted, this is a very negative reading. I'm sorry. <laughs> like if you're in a spot where you're comforted, it's like, well, that is going to be at the expense of something, no matter what, like no matter what um, happens in your life, like it's always going to be at the expense of something or someone else. I think from my viewpoint, from a like saying that they're living in a fantasy world, I kind of look at it as their way of distracting themselves from what the alternative is. Mm. That they have found a way to make peace in their lives, maybe in a way that's not the best. I'm not going to say whether or not you know it is. I mean, I'll leave that up to the listener to determine what you know works for you, what would work for you. AJ and I basically are just giving different examples of different viewpoints. Yep. And so when I see the child, I see the actuality of what the people of Omilas want to avoid. I have this feeling that if if I was to go from a hypothetical standpoint and think of this as, a, say, a real place, and you were to extrapolate this out and you start thinking about, okay, how did Omilas come about to begin with? Well, these people, I would imagine, had various trauma throughout their lives. You know, maybe not, you know, existential trauma, but maybe, you know, Various things. They got laid off at their job. One bad thing after another happened to them. You know, nothing that the average human being in America today, you know, would would you know experience once maybe in their life. Sure. And the child is a reminder to them of what they tried to escape. So the fantasy they create for themselves is this world that none of that will ever happen. Now, is it a fantasy? I don't know. I my my initial thing is they're living on earth and for them nothing bad happens but we all know that that's not the case in in everyday life things unfortunately do happen right and so it's it's a weird tug and play because maybe the fantasy is that nothing bad will happen to them because they're shielded by the cover of this place called Omelas Right. And that's their coping mechanism. Yeah, could be. I love it. I, I think it's an excellent, excellent story. I, I, I'm so glad you shared this with me because- I told you I was going to get you into science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite um, short stories, and I haven't really read many short stories. One of my favorite things I've ever read started off as something I was about to say to AJ. AJ, this is another one of your dark- <laughs> I did. I almost texted you, and I was like, okay, about the first- couple pages here but then i was like nah he'll be fine <laughs> let him push through it it'll be worth it and, and but i do think it's in rereading it i think it's very much structured like that it's very much structured to get you into a certain headspace 
to buy into this story. It did get me into the headspace. And like I always say, one thing I always have to do, because I know some people, and you have a lot of experience with reading these types of genres and um, especially with your background with horror from when you were younger, you know, to, to, to reading all that, getting into that mindset for some people, it could be, you know, a destructive thing where it's, you know, mentally fatiguing or, you know, horrific to look at. But when you can separate yourself from it and just take it for what it is so that it doesn't, you know, affect you mentally, if that makes sense. See it. And I like it to affect me mentally. Oh, you do. <laughs> like, that sounds dark, but let me explain. Like, I do think about the story frequently. I do. Um, we, we, when I was teaching English, like I, I paired up with a social studies teacher um, and, and we focused on issues with industry and how, and how industry like can create a certain amount of suffering. And this story is always on my mind when I think about things like that. Like we are the purchasers of these items that have created suffering in the world and that suffering is that child i always go back to this child and again it doesn't necessarily change my behaviors but i do always like to think of like okay what is the what is the cost here and there's unfortunately there's always a cost like to everything yeah and you know it's when i was first reading it i I did have the feeling i said oh because i i know what aj likes and i was like oh this is another dark thing i said this is going to be hard for me to get through because i'm not used to reading this but when you could find something in, and this is this is where AJ, you could tell, was a teacher because the ability to have somebody like he he knew I didn't read something like this, but to be to be able to say I think you'll pick something from this, whether it be big or small, and that that you can connect with it in some way. And probably my favorite piece of this is the very end when they choose to leave. The few people that choose to leave, that was my icing on the cake, and that was the piece where you know. Granted, I'm potentially putting words in AJ's mouth, but like trying to find like, oh, let me see if I can get you into something. That was the part that I pulled from. Granted, the dark part with the kid and what they're doing to him is something I struggle trying to read something like that because it is dark. Well, and it sets up this nice connection to the ending where like as a reader, you're forced to think, okay, do, am I walking away <laughs> like in this? Cause I don't know. I don't know what my answer is. Like, I think everybody's answer at first before they finish the story is going to be like, Oh my help the kid. Um, but then you get this understanding of like, nobody can. So at this point you have one of two options. You stay or you go. And I don't know what the right answer is. That's also what I think makes this story so unbelievable is you don't know what the very so the, like we said the gut reaction is save the child but by doing that okay say the town goes away what happens to you you know what i mean like what happens to the people if you're in this world that is something i just thought of now because she's saying as the author no they can't save the child this that can't be done so what if somebody said i don't care i'm going to save the child what happens to that person granted we know the only thing she gave us was the town, it all ends. But does that mean the people all then die? Like, that's what I, I'm curious about. I, I took it as, and again, like, it's so open. I think you can interpret it however. Um, but I took it as, like, this just invites the destruction of a society. Like, what, like you're, you're running the risk, and maybe you don't know for certain. I mean, you don't know for certain. But, like, as a person, if you're grappling with, do I just free the child? Like, you got to be thinking, like, well, I could invite a famine here that would kill half the children and then what 
Yeah. There's always another side of the coin to that you have to ask yourself because it, it's it, that's and it being so open ended, I think makes this such a great piece of storytelling. Right. And and I think that's the, like the selflessness of the people that walk into the wilderness at the end very much comes down to like this idea of asceticism. Like they're not, this action is not harming anybody but themselves. Like, yeah, we might make it a hundred feet and be killed, but I'm not taking anyone with me to be killed. Whereas if I free the child, maybe I am. And who's to say that these people, even though for me, it was the most compelling piece, these people leaving Who's to say they come out the other side okay? Like you, you don't even know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so you don't even know if they're making the right choice or not. And, and they don't either. That's kind of the beauty of it is like, I don't, like the people that are leaving are leaving because they can't stand to be here knowing that their happiness is causing this misery, but they don't know what's going to happen. Definitely something I recommend everybody give a shot and read. It's, AJ said four pa- uh, five pages. I actually checked. The fifth page was just a graphic. Yeah, there you go. I cheated and had the old uh, the old anthology physical copy. Definitely worth the read. I when you originally told me about it, I was I was like, oh, this sounds very English teachery, <laughs> you know. And I was like, I don't know what to think of this, man. But again, you surprised me as you do, and <laughs> you, you pulled me in just like with uh, Bukowski. <laughs> Excellent, but very different from the Bukowski. Oh, without without a doubt, <laughs> still dark. <Yep. laughs> All right, folks, that will wrap it up for us. Head on over to makeshiftpress.org slash podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter where you will get some micro reviews and other stuff, um, whatever it is that we decide to put out. Um, So sign up for the newsletter there. Join our Discord. You can find the link in the show notes. And of course, read this story. And this book is over. And so am I. Bye. We're walking away.